Welcome to the Success in South Carolina podcast, where we will be hearing the untold stories of success from people in our community. These successful neighbors of ours will share their real-life philosophies and solutions for success to inspire us, educate us, and help us find peace, joy, and love, along with a purpose, a mission, and a vision for our lives. And I'm your host, Jonathan Peoples. Our guest today was a second father to me as I was growing up. He was one of my Sunday school teachers. He was the biological father of one of my best friends. I got the chance to hear his wisdom and to live life with him to see the decisions he made so I know that his words match up with his actions. He taught me about life, faith, relationships, and how to play a great game of risk. I'm excited that our listeners will get to hear from the man I consider to be the undercover millionaire next door. The man who walked around the world, the man who has endured great tragedies, yet who still remains resilient and faithful through it all. Welcome to the show, my friend, Dennis Thompson. Dennis, let me jump in and say our podcast is called Success in South Carolina. And our listeners love to hear personal stories of kind of a struggle that you've gone through or some kind of trauma that you went through, but you were able to come out of it saying, I learned some things through that and I've become victorious and I I am blessed because of what I went through. Uh, Would you share a story with us about a struggle or a victory that you've gone through like that? John, first and foremost, thank you again for this opportunity. When I was 14 years old, I'm 71 now, but when I was 14 years old, on August 25th, 1965, uh, my dad was at work at DuPont in Louisville, Kentucky, and I lived in New Albany, Indiana, and that's about five miles away, and a little after 9 a.m. that morning, I heard an explosion, and that explosion was the first of a series of explosions, and they went on off and on for many hours. And during that very first explosion that I heard at my house, five miles away from DuPont, where my dad worked as a maintenance foreman, uh, my dad was killed in that initial explosion. It was an accident. It was a disaster at the DuPont plant. 11 men were killed. And along with my dad, there were 12 total. And there were 37 people injured. And It was the worst day of my life. It was a period of time of 24 hours, a little over 24 hours before we actually heard the news that my dad had died in the explosion. And during that time, the DuPont disaster was on television and on the radio and all over the news. There was, uh, as you can imagine, a tremendous amount of concern on our part, but we were hopeful I grew up in First Baptist Church of New Albany, Indiana, and we went every Sunday. Uh, But when my dad died, our family fell apart. We stopped attending church. My mom was uh, very unhappy and didn't understand why God would allow that to happen since she had a children still, a 14-year-old son, an 8-year-old son to raise, and my brother was 19 and my sister was 21. I grieved and grieved until I could cry no more. And after that was all over and I couldn't cry anymore, I decided that I would uh, never cry again, which was a bad decision. 
And so for 20 years, I never cried again, not, not wow. once. Wow. Even when I got, even when I got seriously hurt, John, mm. I never cried again for 20 years. In, in an obvious way, that was really sad because even though I fell in love and married my wife when I was 22 years old and we dated for four years and I'm still married to her today mm. uh, and I'm hopelessly in love with her. But during that time when I never cried, my heart was not a tender heart. Mm. And I didn't, uh, I'm not proud of it, but it's the way it was. And so yeah. then on November 17th, 1985, when I was 34, going on 35 at Lee Road Baptist Church in Greenville, South Carolina, I took faith, a step of faith and I was saved by grace. Mm. spiritually born again and I was a new person I was a different person the tears just streamed down my face and now whenever a dog dies in a movie the tears just just stream down so I've got such a tender heart now and I'm so thankful to God for it that is awesome and uh, so when you were 14 Dennis were you the oldest oldest boy in the family or the oldest sibling no my brother was 19 my sister was 21, but my little brother was only eight. Gotcha. So it, was, it was really hard for, for, for my mom. But but 20 years later, when I got saved, it, it changed everything. And I told my mom about it. And, and she put her faith and trust in God again, no matter what. And she accepted God's will had been done. And, uh, and it, it, it was uh, a miracle. That is, that's a great story, Dennis. And I appreciate you sharing that with us. Do you feel like you've, uh, now that you've gotten some decades looking back on that, that you can say, you know what, here's some lessons that I learned from, from the actual experience. Not, not that, uh, it it took, you know, like you said, 20 years to be able to cry again, but some things that you learned that actually benefited you maybe, maybe even 10 or 20 years later, but something that you're like, you know what, this made me a stronger person or whatever it might be. What are some of those victories or those lessons you learned by going through that great tragedy? I think they can all be summed up in one thing, John, resilience, Hmm. Um, resilience. I mean, in life you get knocked down from time to time, bad, bad things happen, you know? Uh, And when you do, you have a choice and you can either put your faith and trust in God and you can be resilient and you can ask God to help you and, uh, and you can learn from, from, you know, whatever has happened and, you know, look for that silver lining in the cloud, so to speak. And there's, there's an, there's an enormous number of things that, you know, wow. that have happened over that 20 year period of time. And there's a number, enormous, an enormous number of things that continue to happen. And I've heard yeah. people say it's your attitude, not your aptitude that determines right. your altitude. Right. So you have to have an attitude of resilience, and that's a choice. During that 20 years, I, uh, I had a positive attitude, and I wasn't yeah. bitter. And I, uh, But it hurt. What I was trying to describe is the pain of the loss and the love from my dad was so intense that that kind of intense emotional pain and loss and suffering, I really never wanted to feel it again. So the simple, simple way to do it was to sort of put a wall around myself and not allow that to even, you know, sink in when something happened that was uh, 
terrible, you know. Uh, yeah. Or when something happened that was sad, like when the dog died in a movie, you know. Yeah. I just chose to to not let myself go there. So emotionally, it was a it was a wall, but gotcha. there wasn't any bitterness or anger. I just didn't want to hurt like that again, you know. Right. I just didn't want to hurt like that again. But after being saved reminds me of who I am and it reminds me of the tremendous love I had for my dad and he had for me. So being hurt, that huge trauma that you went through, you then walled off a part of your heart to, uh, to kind of keep from being hurt like that again. And then 20 years later you were able to, uh, or, or I guess when God came in, he broke down that wall and you can now feel that and those, and you're not afraid of those feelings. Is that right? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not, yeah, I'm, I, I think they're wonderful feelings, the feelings of yeah. hurt because they are an indication of how much you love someone. But I, mm-hmm. at 14, I just didn't want to have that kind of hurt again. I still wanted sure. to love, but I didn't want to have that kind of hurt again. And that's why that's, you know, that's proof of that because, uh, at 18, I started dating Pam on May 9th, 1969, and May 11th, 1973, four years and two days later, we got married. And so I I fell in love with her. The more I was around her, the more I loved her. And when I fell in love with her, I did not wall off love or life or anything. I just walled off the emotional pain of losing a loved one, you know, and the the pain of like when the dog dies in the movie uh, or, you know, any kind of sad tremendous grief of loss from a loved one. I walled that off. So you've been able to take this trauma and then learn from it and move on to carry that resilience with you. And I can, I can testify to that personally, uh, that you are a very resilient guy. You know, I've grown up in your house near your family. Like I said, you're kind of a second father to me. And, uh, and then to, to kind of pivot here, I remember some of the lessons you taught me back in Sunday school are some of the ones that I still remember to this day. I, I know that I mentioned a couple of them to you uh, last time you and I spoke, but one of them, uh, I, I'd like to talk about two of them real quick because two of them stick out in my mind are so uh, crystal clear. And this was 30 years ago that you were teaching me and I was probably 10 years old in this Sunday school class. But I remember you talking about um, a man on the side of the road. And he shouts out pig out of, as you're driving by and I'll let you probably retell it, Dennis, but, uh, but do you remember that story? I do. And the first reaction of, of a person could possibly be that guy just called me a pig and I'm not happy about that, but there's another possibility, right? Right. And yeah, the possibility I, is that he was warning you that there was a pig up ahead in the road just around the curve and you couldn't see it. And at the speed you were going, it could lead to a disaster. Right. And I think that I've been able to take that lesson with me my whole life. And that personally, what I took from that lesson was you get to choose your attitude and you get to choose your perspective. When other people say things to you, you can either choose to be offended or you can choose to say, hey, is there a lesson in this that I need to learn? And I feel like that, that that is very relevant today because society is more and more, we're being taught it's hip. It is cool to be offended. Do you feel like that that's the lesson yeah. that I was supposed to learn from that? Or did I learn the wrong lesson? No, absolutely. Absolutely. You, you got it dead on. And, and I'm so uh, humbled by the fact that 
that you remember that. And, uh, you know, we all have impact on other people's lives and we just don't even realize it. And I didn't realize it at the time and I do now. Um, but we all have an impact on people's lives and it can be an impact of good or bad or anywhere in between. And, uh, lots of times we don't even know what that impact is. And, and I, I think, I think that lesson is that sometimes we don't have a lot of time to express our thoughts. You know, we, mm. we have thoughts and we take those thoughts and as best we can, we put them into words and express them to other people. And when we're in a hurry, we ha- there's the opportunity for misunderstanding. Right. And so I've, I've often said as related to that story, people have meaning, not words, because right. they took that, that thought and they put it into words. And sometimes they did it as quick as they could because there was an urgency. And then you took that thought and decoded the words and tried to get the thought that was in their head into yours. Just like when you said, when you summarized earlier and you said what you thought I was trying to say, and I said it was close, that's what it takes. It takes right. a little right. more time for me to understand you and for you to understand me. And that's really important. In fact, it's right. even important to, to being successful. Especially in the English language, we can be misunderstood so many times. Do you have to choose your attitude? Do you have to choose your perspective? And do you choose one of positivity? How do you, how do, you do that, Dennis? I think the key is listening truly listening you know you've probably heard it said john i I heard it when i was a little kid Um, a teacher once said johnny you have two ears and one mouth therefore you should listen twice as much as you talk that's good that's good when i was in school i used to say well my mouth is at least three times as big as my ear so that means i'm supposed to talk three times louder though (laughs) so uh another another lesson that i remember from uh from dennis was when we were in sunday school and you taught me about uh about peer pressure uh do you remember that story where they're looking at a looking at a chalkboard i think and they're talking about which line is longer or something like that dennis can you can you talk about that story or, or retell that story for our listeners here yeah, wow, that was a long time ago, John, and I'm again impressed that that that, that had an impact because I was hoping and praying it would uh, with the kids I was talking to because peer pressure is such a formidable uh, force in, in the life of young people, and it was in my life, and I can remember it like yesterday. I can remember uh, peer pressure like yesterday, and, and leading into this story about that, that I told in Sunday school, it reminds me of something else that happened in my life. When I was in high school, John, I had a a core group of friends and then many, many other friends, but this core group of friends that I hung out with, they, every one of those friends, they smoked, they drank, and I was strongly opposed to those things. I just was. And my friends pressured me enormously to to smoke and to drink and uh, and I said, no. And, and there was not those friends, other friends that wanted, you know, offered me uh, drugs. And I said, no. And at Purdue and college, they offered that stuff. So lots of peer pressure, you know, as a young person. I mean, I'm aware of that. I remember it like yesterday. It's so vivid, that peer pressure. But I always said, no. Well, here's the, here's the caveat. Many years later, decades, one of those friends, he sent me a letter in the mail that I received and opened up. And he talked about how he and 
the others made fun of me when, you know, when I wouldn't smoke and when I drank and they pressured me. In fact, there was one time when we, uh, they were going to drink, go drink and then, and they were, un, you know, they were underage in Indiana. Mm-hmm. And, and I said, I wouldn't. And they said they wouldn't take me home. And I said, fine, when we get to the liquor store, I'll just go inside with you guys. And I'll ask the person at the store to please let me use the phone so I can call my mom because I want to go home. And they all said, take the baby home, you know, I'll take the baby home, you know, Thompson, he's a baby. So they, they took me home. But this letter that I got decades later, I don't know how long after high school, uh, was, was from one of them. And he said, we never told you. We never told you, but all those times when you stood strong and didn't smoke or drink and we pressured you to do it, we all talked about privately how much we admired your strong will and who you were and your decision to not do it. Right. He said it was amazing to us. It was amazing to us that you didn't cave in. And he said you will not believe, would not believe how profoundly it affected us, but we never told you. I was overjoyed. I was thrilled. So back to the peer pressure in the Sunday school class. The story was about three lines on the chalkboard. And and a group of people were looking at them, teenagers and young people. And uh, there was there were some people in that group that were in on what was going to happen with this peer pressure. In fact, all of them were in on it except one person, and it was a large group of, of, of people, of teenagers and young people. And in this large group, only one of them was not in on what was going to happen. And all of them in this group were told that we're going to tell this person, we're all going to raise our hand and say, all three of those lines are the same length mm. that you drew on the board. When actually one of those lines is clearly, obviously, a little bit shorter. Right. But in unmistakably shorter. And so the three lines are drawn on the board and the teacher says, okay, um, are all these lines the same length? If yes, raise your hand. And everybody in the room raises their hand. Yeah. Except the one person of course, that yeah. wasn't in on it. Yeah. And they're all looking at him like, what's wrong with you, man? You know, can't you see in their pressure? And can you see they're all the same length? Are you kidding me? And so he begins to doubt himself you know, or herself. And the next thing you know, she, just because they don't want to be weird or whatever reason, they, they agree to it. Right. Well, that's just when you know something and you know it's true, don't give in to, to peer pressure. Because right. it, it, this is a simple example and an unhurtful example, but it, you could be giving in to something that could lead to a path that's going you know, to destroy your life eventually. Right. Especially if it was to give in to taking drugs. Right. And I know that people, it it is definitely a, uh, like you said, a a kind of a silly example because is it important or not? Maybe not. But at the end of the day, it's about truth too, right? It's about, are we recognizing truth? Right. And it can be hard to stand up. It's right. And it can be hard sometimes to stand up for the truth, especially when people are pressuring you, pressuring you. And when they're pressuring you, it may be something little, it may be something simple, but the point is whether it's little or big, the point right. is that you don't, you don't cave in to what your conscience and your good Lord, your God given brain tells you that is wrong, you know, and, it, right. and it's not true. It's incorrect. 
you don't give in to that. And that's, that's the point of the whole thing is to be strong. And there's a verse in the Bible that says, he that is faithful in that which is least is also faithful in much. So if you right. can be strong and truthful about the simple things, how are you going to do it in the big things when you're pressured? Right. And these right. are just lines on the board, you know? So yeah, again, be true to yourself. And something else that's interesting too, you know, we, I, I know that I got a lot of these peer pressure lessons when I was uh, uh, younger or maybe even a teenager, but doesn't peer pressure play uh, uh, an impact in our lives, even as we grow up and we're older, Dennis? Sure. Yeah. At any age, even in adults. And there's been studies that, that I've read about that prove that, and I'm not an avid reader, but in my lifetime, I'm, I've experienced peer pressure at work, you know? Uh, right. So it, it, it's everywhere. It's throughout your life, not just young people. But I think I, me personally, was more susceptible. Uh, the friends that I had, I think, were more susceptible when they were younger than when they were older. Uh, right. And when they were older, they, they learned from their mistakes of giving right. into peer pressure. And, right. and it was, you know, if it was not too late, and hopefully it wasn't, then they, then they um, you know, learn from their mistakes. It's right. That again, that again is part of being successful is learning. Yeah. And I think that even also you become like the five people you hang around most. So peer pressure can work both ways. It can work negatively, but it can also work positively. If you choose a great association and you hang around people that are successful or moving forward in life or have great character, then that kind of rubs off on you too. Yeah, I think that's true. My dad used to always say, hang out with people smarter than you. And I don't think he I don't think he meant that to mean don't be friends with people who are not. He meant right. to, I think he meant it to, to be don't be afraid to hang out with people that are smarter than you because you can learn from anyone. I said it earlier. You can learn from anyone. You can learn what to do and you can learn what not to do. <laughs> right. Right. And there's a wisdom in that. I feel like there, there's so much wisdom and uh, and intelligence and knowledge I remember some of my most favorite memories growing up is playing a game of Risk or Stratego or, or what what were some of the other games that we used to play? Risk, Stratego, Acquire, Chess, Acquire, yeah. I still I still to this day don't think I've ever beat you in chess, Dennis. <laughs> we'll have to yeah, play again I, sometime. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I I love the game, so I was a student yeah. of the game too. Yeah. And even though we were kids, you never, you never let us win, which I, I admire that to this day too. You, you put on a good game because you wanted us to be better. Yeah. And, and I'll tell you uh, something, John, it, it, that was different with different people. Obviously in life, you learn, you need to learn how to lose, right? Sure. Because if you can't lose in a game and be resilient, how are you going to lose in something major? You know, yeah. I mean, how are you going to have losses of a major impact emotional losses love losses of a loved one how are you right. going to be resilient in those losses if you can't do it if you can't do it and lose in a game so losing in a game should teach you to be a good sport it should teach you to respect your opponent it should teach you to to realize your opponent was better than you at that point in time it should encourage you to practice and get better to learn how to practice what the right fundamentals are to practice study, be, you know, it, it should teach you all of those things. You know, sports is so valuable because it teaches you those things. And so do games and especially games uh, that, that involve uh, thinking, you know, and, and using your brain. 
so and they're fun, you know, and and they're harmless. You know, you get you get better or you get worse. You know, it's your choice. Right. Uh, but but some people, some people, if I played a younger person like yourself, and and you lost, uh, if I felt like that losing would inspire you to get better, then then I never let you win. Right. But if I thought, <laughs> but if I thought at some point, if I thought at some point, if I was I had a person that was young and I was playing them and it wasn't, it wasn't going to inspire them to get better. It was going to break them down. It was going to mm. take them in an opposite direction. Then I would let them win as an encouragement. And the secret right. of that is if you do let someone win, you have to never, never, ever tell them. Right. Right. <laughs> Cause then it, because then it just ruins the whole purpose that you were trying right. to, uh, to help them. So, so the key is trying to help someone and, and it's different for different people, of course. Well, I am, uh, I'm honored then because I, I feel like you never let me win. <laughs> oh, I, I didn't. I never, but I feel did. like, I never let I feel you like I learned win. a lot from it. I don't think you ever let Dustin win either. Um, no, but, in fact, Dustin one time said to me, he said, dad, will I ever beat you at chess? And because I knew it would make him more determined and because I knew it would make him better I said, of course not. <laughs> You'll never beat me. Has he beat you to this day? Yeah. So one day he did beat me. <laughs> wow. One yeah. time. Very similar story with my father, Dennis. My father was very good at chess. And then finally, one day I beat him. I have not played him again since. I was like, okay, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, that's funny. <laughs> uh, but that funny. shows that, you know, that, that, uh, that the continual that that was my goal. I wanted to beat him. And then when I accomplished my goal, well, now I don't need to get good at chess anymore. So I think that that shows the, like you said, the resilience of continuing to continuing to press forward towards some kind of goal, whatever it is in the, in the face of adversity. I think that that is a huge key to success. In fact, let's pivot from that and say, how does Dennis Thompson define success? Okay, well, let's let's talk about how to define success and also what I believe to be the secret to success at my late age in my life. And first and foremost, I want to say, I don't know. But I know for me and from my experience, from my personal experience, and for me, I I believe I do know what the secret to success is for me. And I do believe I know I know what what how I would define it for me. But 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 here's the here's the thing about about success. Um, well, let's start with this. Thomas Edison comes to mind. Uh, he said, our greatest weakness lies in giving up. The most certain way to succeed is always to try just one more time. I mean, that's what he said. And basically, another way to say that I've heard said many times is people say to get better at something, you have to do three things. Practice, practice, practice. And, yeah. and another great, great person that I admire that's been successful in life, in addition to Thomas Edison, is Abraham Lincoln. Mm. And Abraham Lincoln said, he said, I will study and get ready, and perhaps my chance will come. And that speaks to me. That speaks to my whole life. And it, it says to learn, learn, and learn. And that's what I've done my whole life. I saw a quote on the internet that said, There is no glory in practice, but without practice, there is no glory. Right. Or you could say it another way. There's there's no success in practice, 
but without practice, there's no glory. Because Thomas Edison failed, I think I've heard it said like a thousand times, and he was asked, you know, now what? And he said, well, now I know a thousand ways that a thousand materials that electricity pass through them won't make a light bulb. So I'm closer to the answer. So again, you know, his thought was not giving up. Succeeding was always to, to try just one more time. But I also think that success is a continuous process. Right. And there's different types of success, like you mentioned, and they fall into, I would say, three real important categories. There's physically, you want to be successful. You want to exercise. You want to take care of your body physically with what you eat and how you exercise. That's an important thing to take care of your body physically. That's a responsibility. And then there's mentally, you want to be successful. Well, to be successful mentally, you have to you have to learn. You have to con- continuously learn your entire mm-hmm. life. You have to you have to have a desire to learn, and you have to not be afraid of people that are smarter than you. And then you have to be successful. The most important type of all is you strive to be successful spiritually. It's my heart de- heart's desire to to be spiritually perfect and to be like Jesus Christ, but. I won't achieve that in this world. I'll reach that goal when I go to heaven to be with my Lord and Savior. So another aspect of success is that it, when you are successful and you have those successes, you want, you want to celebrate them. The success, it breeds uh, joy. It breeds happiness. It, a sense of urgency and accomplishment comes from success or a sense of urgency kind of lives within it. You know, you want to, you want to achieve it. Uh, you want it. And then when you do, it's a sense of accomplishment and this joy and happiness is there. Those successes, as they pile up, they breed more of that. So we're always successful when we try. And we and when we try, if we try to do our best and if we're doing things that would please God and glorify God, then we're always successful regardless of the outcome. I think about sports. Some games you win, sometimes you lose. Winning is pretty easy. But with winning, you're less likely to be motivated to get better. But when someone beats you and you know they were better than you, you you're, you want to play them again, be like your dad with chess and like Dustin with me at chess. You want to play them again because you want to beat them. You want to get better. Right. Um, and, and that's the proper attitude. I think tied with success is happiness. We've seen it in people who are enormously successful and they're unhappy. You know, huge successes as far as dollars in their life, uh, but they're not happy. So success without happiness, in my mind, it's just really not success. And happiness is elusive, just like success is. It would say in the Declaration of Independence, somewhere in there it says, we hold these truths to be self-evident. All men are created equal or mankind. And among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So there's a lot of wisdom in the Declaration of Independence. You know, they didn't say that we have a right to life, liberty, and happiness. The founding fathers said we have a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's a subtle difference, but it makes a huge point. Yeah. So so you have to ask yourself not only what is success, but what's happiness? You know, what's the secret right. to happiness? At age 71, I have to say, like I began at the beginning, I really don't know the secret to success. I just have what I've learned it to be for me. And and perhaps it's different for different people. In fact, I would say to everyone, figure out what it is that you're good at and work hard at it and earn a living at it. You know, the Bible says in Genesis that we will eat by the sweat of our brow. 
And the Bible talks places about not being lazy and slothful and to work hard. So hard work is expected of us. It's what brings glory to God. And so different people are going to be successful doing different things. That's why on a baseball team or in an office at work, but a baseball team, for example, if everybody was a catcher and that's what they were successful at, then you'd have a terrible team. You'd have all catchers. You need a team and, and we're all different. And so perhaps the secret to success is different for different people, but I think it probably sure. involves finding out what you're good at and then doing your best at it, figuring out what you love to do. Your goal for success changes over time. You know, we were talking about my life. In my life, when I was young, let's say when I was under the age of 34, to me, successful was dollars. It was the things of earth. You know, I wanted money. The more money, right. the greater the success. Mm -hmm. I was young, you know, I, I didn't. And then when I got married, I thought the best way I can be successful is to show my love to my wife and my family. And the best way I could do that, I thought, was to make lots of money. Right. And so I wanted I wanted to someday be a CEO of a major Fortune 500 company. But when I got saved on November 17th, 1985, shortly after that, I was on a fast track in my career. And shortly after I got saved, I was offered a job as a plant manager to move from Greenville, South Carolina, to uh, South Bend, Mishawaka, Indiana, as a, as a plant manager. And God was convicting me that that wasn't what I should do. That wasn't what I would be successful and happy at. I might be a fantastic plant manager, but I'd be unhappy. And it wouldn't be something to, that was what I was called to do. It might be right for someone else. So, you know, again, it's different for different people. But for me, it just wasn't right. And so I had to tell, I had to tell them, no, I wouldn't take, take that promotion. And it was hard because the old Dennis Thompson, the old me, I wanted, John, I wanted to be a plant manager. It was an ego thing and a pride thing, you know. Right. But I knew in my heart that God was convicting me, no. And so I said, no. And I think it's in Matthew 6, verses 19 and 20. When I was born again, after November 17, 1985, my success was to glorify God. And that verse, those two verses in Matthew 16, 19 20, through 20, you say something like, uh, do not store up your treasures in the things of earth where the moth and the rust doth corrupt. Mm -hmm. But store up your treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through to steal. Something mm -hmm. like that. You can look it up, Matthew 6, yeah. 19 through and 20. But that, to me, those treasures that you store up in heaven, those are successes. And those are the things that, that I would use to define success. It seems like I'm noticing a theme with all of these. I, even when you talk about Abe Lincoln and Thomas Edison, those are two gentlemen that went through a lot of failures in order to find their success. And then you, you said success is a process. It's not necessarily a destination, but it's the journey itself is success. It's the pursuit of this success, pursuit of happiness. And that, that all goes back to resilience too, right? These, yeah. these are all, I feel like all these go hand in hand if that's your one core truth. And I love it, Dennis. This strikes a chord with me because I, 
personally, I, I adopt the word endurance. I love the word endurance and I'm a great, I love running and I do endurance running and I feel like endurance and resilience have a lot in common. And maybe that's why I've connected with you my whole life. I think, Let's, I think perhaps so. And, 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 and <laughs> it, it, I mean, it's a, that endurance is never quitting. Right. What, right. What, what Edison said to do, just keep on until you're successful. Right. The difference between a winner and a loser is that a winner just doesn't quit. If if you keep playing until you win, then you can't lose, right? Yeah. And even if you did keep playing until you won and you did never lose, as long as you were bringing glory to God, it's okay. Right. I've always loved something that Galileo said. He said, if I've seen further than other men, it's because I stood on the shoulders of giants. Wow. So, you know, yeah. theologians, theologians have studied the word of God. And as iron sharpens iron, one man sharpens another. He learns from another. I think they would say about the book of Ecclesiastes that 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 Solomon is talking about uh, everything you do in life, even if even if the world thinks it's successful, if it's not done for the glory of God, it's done in vain. Yeah, so, it's you know, it was a strong strong book of the Bible there, Ecclesiastes. It starts with vanity, and uh, that that's true. That if you're not doing it for the glory of God, then there's just vanity in it. What's the purpose? Yeah. So it, it would be maybe successful in terms of earthly things, but it wouldn't be a treasure in heaven, you know, mm-hmm. and Solomon, right. of course, you know, God gave him wisdom when he asked for it. And that's something we should all ask for. Well, Dennis, this has been an absolute blast and absolute pleasure uh, getting to chat with you today. I know that you recently have published a book around a year ago, you published your first book about your stories. Tell us a little bit about how that came to be. If you can kind of summarize, how did that book come to be and how can people find this book? The book is a miracle because I never planned to write it. And on Christmas Eve of 2020, December 24th, of course, on, on uh, the year 2020, I got a Christmas present from Amber, my older son's wife, David. And really, it was from all of the family. And uh, her Christmas present was to write stories and that I would receive a, a question every week in email. And then I'd be asked to write a story about it. And then that story would become a, a, a storybook. When I got it, when I got the Christmas present, what raced through my head was, I can't write a book. And if I wrote one, it, it would be terrible and no one would be interested in reading it, even my family members, because it, it would be uninteresting. Right. And and then when I was thinking those thoughts, those negative thoughts, but I thought it was uh, going to be a chore. Now I got to write all these stories. And then when I had those thoughts in a split second go through my head, she looked straight into me, I, into my eyes, you know, like a piercing look, a loving. And she says, Dennis we want to hear your stories. And so it was game on after that, you know, there, there was yeah. conviction, there was a challenge, you know, that was the spark that lit the fire of conviction in my heart to write the book. So I wrote the book. There's 59 stories in the book. They're all true. And they all answer a question about life and what matters most in my life. And, and it asked the question at the end, what matters most in your life? So after I wrote it, I realized the book was very, much uh, a book that had Bible verses in it that I recalled as I wrote the stories, much like verses that I've recalled as we've talked. 
And I realized that God, ever since I was changed, I've wanted to tell people about the good news of Jesus Christ and the miracles that have happened in my life and the resilience that, that God's given me. And that there's a lot of miracles in the book. And so I thought this might make a difference in people's lives. And so the, the nutshell core thought on the book is on the cover of the book. And it says, personal stories, hopefully improving your life now and possibly forever. And it's published on uh, Amazon and, and it's available as an ebook and it's available as a paperback book and it's available as a hardback book. And there's the next to the last story in the book before the conclusion that talks about one more major event in my life. It talks about prostate cancer. I found out I had prostate cancer in uh, the year 2020. Uh, I, I had it prior to that, but I found out I had it in March. It was advanced. It spread locally. I had two different surgeries. They removed my prostate. They removed in the second surgery tumors that were in my lymph nodes. And um, there's no cure for, for what I have. But I've had some Bible verses in my head that I absolutely cannot get out and that I'm so thankful for. And those verses, here's what they say. My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. When I am weak, then I'm strong. That's why my favorite verse in the Bible is, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not unto your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he'll direct your path. Because as an engineer, graduate from Purdue, I always have wanted to figure things out and wanted to know why and wanted to understand. And, you know, I don't know why I have cancer. I know God could cure me from it. I know he could heal me. I don't know what he will do, but I know he could do it. I've often told people, when God does a miracle and you're surprised and you feel like it's a lack of faith, don't feel that way. You never had a doubt of what God could do. Mm. You were just surprised and amazed at what he did because you didn't know what he'd do. Well, Dennis, I, I really appreciate you sharing that story with us and sharing all your stories with us. Our listeners should definitely go out and check out that book, Go to Amazon.com and type in Dennis Thompson if you want to search for his name and you should be able to find it. All right, listeners, let's get out there and make our world, our country, and our community a better place. When you succeed, we all succeed. And as always, this is a friendly reminder that the left lane is for passing. So speed up or move over.